0: Merrick Garland testified to the House today. We'll start there. Trump went on Meet the Press, threatened retribution, changed his tune on abortion, and confessed to everything but ordering the code red. We'll talk about what it means for the 2024 campaign. The extremists in the Republican Party are coming for Kevin McCarthy. We'll tell you why you should make this saga a major part of your case when persuading people in your life to leave the GOP. The United Auto Workers are on strike. America feels differently toward workers lately, and that's a good thing. We'll get into it. Finally, we'll update you on Rudy Giuliani's unpaid legal bills and, if we have time, what our politics can learn from Deion Sanders. Welcome to the podcast that helps you, the 54% of the country that votes for progress in every election, convince your conservative friends and family members to join our majority. This is Majority 54.
1: Jason, you didn't have to dress up for me today.
0: I am wearing a tie. I have a thing right after this. And, uh, so, yes, it is. I feel like I should be more formal than usual, but I probably will not be.
1: All right. Well, I feel like I should have dressed up and wear my my East Dillon Panthers or East Dillon Lions <laughs> shirt from Friday Night Lights. But OK, I, I spent the morning watching this hearing of the House Oversight or Judiciary Committee or whatever that Jim Jordan uh, chairs. And uh, it was a mess. Merrick Garland testified and Merrick Garland is a pretty even keeled guy and I could just see him getting, I'm just fixing this piece of hair sticking up by the way, while I'm talking, but uh, he, he, he's a hard guy to get a, like to get a rise out of, but he certainly was getting um, frustrated at various points and also appeared to have a hard time hearing what was going on. But essentially what was going on is back and forth because of the hearings, like the way these things work, we go from a Republican to a Democrat. The Republican would ask him repeatedly the same questions about Hunter Biden, and they're basically trying to show both that, that Garland didn't give uh, Weiss, the uh, special counsel, formerly uh, U.S. attorney, um, in charge of the, the Hunter Biden investigation. Uh, investigation, or current U.S. attorney, but uh, he, that, he didn't, that Garland didn't give him authority, but that now he's giving him authority but weiss is incompetent so it's like this circular argument and and garland just keeps answering the same questions over and over and over again and it's made all the weirder that jim jordan is presiding over this when you know jim jordan himself has ignored congressional subpoenas so what was going on was garland would answer questions he'd get frustrated It would then go back to a Democrat, and the Democrats would do one of a few things. One is they would just use the opportunity to remind the American public that Jim Jordan has ignored subpoenas. Two is they would talk about January 6th, and in some cases played clips from January 6th. Or third is they would just thank Garland for some unrelated matter, like taking down El Chapo's son or something. And it's just a really strange hearing. Quite depressing, honestly. But, uh, you know, kudos to Garland for sitting through this. Uh, It is... It's just so dumb. I don't know what else to say about it. It's just a truly maddening waste of time, given everything else that we'll get to that Congress should be doing right now.
0: When we were talking about whether or not to talk about it, uh, you were we were on the text thread and you were saying, you know, has anybody seen any major clips come out of this? And Salty, our producer, was like, no, it's mostly just Republicans auditioning to be Fox News contributors. And it sounds like that is a For sure. a pretty apt, not just description of these hearings, but of most of what. The like most visible Republican members of Congress do is just advertise themselves for their future Fox contributor positions or Newsmax or X or whatever the heck. And I don't know, I could go off on a whole thing about it, but we should probably just move on.
1: Yeah, you're not much to see there yet. It's just a sense of like, I'm glad Merrick Garland is in his position because he's very good at what he does. He is not giving them anything. He showed tremendous integrity. And he and Weiss have been a hundred percent on the same page. Like they, 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 the Republicans are trying to find daylight between what Weiss has said about his his authority and what Garland has said. And it's just completely identical and contradicts like there was we've talked about this before, this whistleblower from the IRS who suggested that Weiss didn't have authority that he wanted. Uh, And then shortly after that whistleblower said that both Weiss came out and said, if I wanted authority, I'd get it. And then he asked for authority a couple weeks later, got it right away. Totally like, you know, making moot any of that quote unquote whistleblower testimony. I mean, it's, they're, they're struggling to find something here and they really have other business to tend to.
0: Before we move on to any other stuff. One thing I would say about Merrick Garland is given the arc of his story In our lives over the last several years, beginning with him being introduced to all of us when he was nominated for a Supreme Court seat that he ultimately was not, you know, did not get because of chicanery. It's kind of remarkable that we don't actually know what it what it's like when Merrick Garland is flustered or loses control. So, you know, maybe some people feel like, well, he's not passionate enough. I mean, I'm sure there's multiple ways to look at this, but you got to hand it to the dude like he stays pretty even keel.
1: Yeah, he didn't, like, his job there, like, even though he got a little bit flustered, he's, like, kind of an older guy. So it's, like, even his is, like, almost like your your grandfather. Uh, he kind he's, of, like, disapproving you know, more than yeah, flustered. Yeah, disappointed. And yeah. the Democrats were doing the work to make it a painful hearing for the Republicans. Like, Garland's job there is just to avoid any major soundbite and go back to work. Like, he doesn't want to have to create any more work for himself. He's got a full plate right now. And, you know, good job to him so far. I haven't seen all the sort of clips coming out of the hearing, but so far, right. so good.
0: Speaking of stuff happening on camera that has to do with politics and might not mean much, want to talk about this Meet the Press interview?
1: Yeah, I, you know, interesting that Trump felt the need to do this, but he went on Meet the Press this weekend and, and said a bunch of Trumpy things. I, I think it's important just to take note of where he is right now. Let's start with this first clip where he uh, talks about some scores he needs to settle. When I talk
2: about retribution, I'm talking about fairness. We have to treat people fairly. These people on January 6th, they went, some of them never even went into the building and they're being given sentences of, you know, many years.
0: Are you gonna pardon Nothing those people happening.
2: who've been convicted, well, I'm going Mr. To look President? At them and I certainly might if I think it's appropriate. Uh, no, it's a very, very sad thing. And it's, they're dividing the country so badly and it's very dangerous.
0: They're dividing the country uh, mm-hmm. with these sentences on January sixth, yeah. Which is interesting, Robbie, because if there's one thing that's not controversial uh, with most Americans, it's sentencing like garden variety insurrectionists from January sixth. Like people might have different views on like what should happen to Trump and the others, but when it's like the people who storm the Capitol, there's not there's not a lot of persuadable voters that are like they're being too hard on those folks.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's a reminder Trump is uh, one of his many indictments relates to this. And he said something else related to sort of January 6 related matters that I think is going to potentially become relevant in, in some of his cases. Let's go to this clip.
2: You called some of your outside lawyers. You said they had crazy theories
0: why were you listening to them were you listening to them because they were telling you what you wanted to hear you
2: know who i listened to myself i saw what happened i watched that election and i thought the election was over at 10 o'clock in the evening were you calling the shots though mr president ultimately uh as to whether or not i believed it was rigged oh sure i I, it was my decision
1: so he's basically saying that you know, this wasn't really his lawyers pushing him. This was his decision. Now, this could be read one of two ways. One could be, hey, he's just saying that was my state of mind. I'm sticking to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, or it could be read as, hey, like anything now that they, his attorneys try to put into the record about what his lawyers told him and that he was relying on advice of counsel or advice is going to be irrelevant. It probably both are true. I found it really interesting. That was the first time I've heard him
0: say that he believed. You know, it's almost like he's alluding to a defense that's coming that is... Look, that's what I... Because that's the that's the defense they've been mounting, right? Is, right? That's what he believed, and him believing that is not against the law. And Trump has never publicly endorsed that. It's always been, it was rigged, it is rigged, it has been stolen from us. And given that he also is sliding back on some of his other statements, which we'll get to in a second in that interview... I feel like there's a part of Trump that understands that it is time to start gradually moving his position on all of this to, that's what I believed. And then it'll eventually become, because that's what I was told. And given the framing of that question about him having crazy lawyers with crazy theories and him having said that, he couldn't say, well, I was being told this. He has to say, well, that's what I believed. So. I'm interested, I will be interested to see how this evolves.
1: <sighs> yeah. Um, like as a reminder to the the audience on this, if if he believes it, it's still not that as relevant as his lawyers are claiming or that he thinks it is, right? Like we've talked about this many times. You could believe a lot of things, but then if you, and I don't actually think he believed it, but we'll put that aside. Even if he did, if he then does illegal things acting under that belief, uh that is a crime still still oj
0: simpson believed that those guys (laughs) in that las vegas hotel room had memorabilia that belonged to him so he went in at gunpoint and he took it and a court and a judge and an appellate court ultimately said it doesn't matter that you believed it was yours you still took it at gunpoint and that's not okay and by the way it wasn't yours so it doesn't matter if you believed it was yours It's the exact same thing. It does not matter. Now, before we go to this next clip, I I just want people to remember that the Trump that we are going to most likely run against next year is not the Trump that we've been seeing for the last several months. The Trump that we will run against will be one who by that time will have worked very hard to change history and to say things that you know make it seem like none of the craziest or worst stuff that is most unpopular that he's done recently ever happened and that this next clip is the beginning of that so go ahead and tee that up but i just want everybody to remember we're not facing the very politically vulnerable guy that's been trying to win a primary we're facing something else that's much harder to beat
1: yeah well let's just play it
2: i think the republicans speak very inarticulately about this subject. Other than certain parts of the country, you can't, you're not gonna win on this issue. But you will win on this issue when you come up with the right number of weeks. We're going to agree to a number of weeks, or months, or however you want to define it, and both sides are gonna come together, and both sides, both sides, and this is a big statement, both sides will come together, and for the first time in 52 years, you'll have an issue that we can put behind it.
0: So for those, those playing at home, you may have already guessed, he was talking about abortion. So, Ravi, what are your thoughts? I have several. Go ahead.
1: Well, uh, he has said repeatedly and taken credit for overturning Roe, like he has used it as a, uh, a promise fulfilled so I actually think like we have pretty clear statements from him on this. Obviously, he's evolved. He was like apparently pro-choice before he ran for president and is now, um, you know, has kind of gone through some kind of evolution, basically, mostly sort of related to his self-interest. But You don't it's, think it's his faith? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, but his, uh, I think that it's going to, this 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 is going to be hard for him to pull off. Uh, But I do think it is probably better at this point than just owning his record alone. Because I think Mm -hmm. owning his record alone helps you in a primary, but he doesn't have to worry about a primary. So what he's doing is pivoting to the general election immediately, which Mm -hmm. means he thinks there is no chance anybody's going to beat him. And he's probably right. Mm -hmm. Uh, I still think we can hang his abortion record uh, around his neck, but it makes some sense to muddy the waters here a little bit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. This is this when I saw this, I was like, oh, this dude's going into general election mode like and six weeks ago or eight weeks ago, or whatever it was when he was saying, you know, I'm the one who killed Roe v. Wade. They've been trying to kill it for a long time. I'm the one who killed it. That was a Trump that was still scared of losing the primary. That that is over. Perhaps something happens that returns us to that, but I don't think so. This is him saying, all right, now we're going into general election mode. So great news, people. It is what? September of 2023. This election, we now have like 13 months of Biden versus Trump of we're in general election mode. That's really where things are going to be. That's not great news. That's just what it is and we know this be- because he is trying to move back to the middle. I mean not even to the middle. He is trying to move to the center of American like abortion politics to the point where he's not he doesn't even sound anti-choice. He sounds like a guy right there who is saying well, we've got to figure this out. We've got to come together as a people. That is a person who is saying that there should be a right to choose without saying it, which right. is a lot different from when he was trying to win a primary in 2016. And he said, well, there should be a punishment for women uh, who, who get an abortion. Now, obviously, we will work very hard to make sure people remember all that. But to me, the most telling part of this interview is toward the end and actually now that we've told everybody about abortion i'm sorry to do this to the listeners let's listen to it again and let's listen to it with an ear for what are the clues that he had gone into this interview deciding to do this that this was the reason he did the meet the press interview
2: i think the republicans speak very inarticulately about this subject other than certain parts of the country you can't you're not going to win on this issue but you will win on this issue, when you come up with the right number of weeks, we're going to agree to a number of weeks or months or however you want to define it. And both sides are going to come together and both sides, both sides. And this is a big statement. Both sides will come together. And for the first time in 52 years, you'll have an issue that we can put behind it.
0: Okay. So for those listening at home, which I guess would be everybody, because uh, it's a podcast. Um, First, he says, uh, the Republicans, he starts with the Republicans are very inarticulate. We think all the time about all the efforts that Democrats make to separate Republican voters from Trump in order in general elections, like in the last two presidential elections, there's been a great effort to say, Hey, uh, there you Republicans, you may be Republicans, but you're not with this guy. You gotta be with our guy, right? But what we forget is that often Trump separates himself from the Republicans. It's how he stays above, not above the fray, but it's how he stays like beyond the the, ne- the the negative feelings that a lot of his voters have toward politics. they It's what allows them to have positive feelings toward him and negative feelings toward literally everything else in politics, is that he talks about the two parties as though he is not a member of one of them. Because we all know that... He really kind of isn't. He only stands for himself, and he uses that for himself when he's going into general election mode, and that's what he's doing there. Second, and this is the same thing, he keeps referring to both sides. Both sides are going to come together. Now, he's making himself president again. I'm going to come in. I'm going to broker a piece. I'm going to be the guy who's the art of the deal, et cetera, et cetera. And then the last one, the most obvious, is when he says, now, this is a big statement here because clearly... He went into the interview thinking I'm going to begin my movement toward the middle on abortion and I'm going to do it with this interview and that's the whole point of the interview.
1: Yeah, we got to I mean we've got to be really sharp and I think this kind of dovetails with the conversation we had last week and it's like We've got to be very clear with the American public, very pointed. We have got to call out this kind of stuff and remind them that, yeah, this guy was president. And instead of bringing people together on this issue, which you know Roe versus Wade already did take into account the sort of the different trimesters of a pregnancy, we had that on the books. That was the law. Uh, Instead of that, he actually is the one who's created and sowed this chaos that we have today. He is responsible for it. And so we've got to be clear about that.
0: But even that's not enough, because one of the features of being a huge flip-flopper who changes your mind all the time is that your voters— don't punish you for the things you've said in the past, because they say to themselves, well, yeah, but he'll change. Mm-hmm. And he said he's changed. Okay, he's changed. So it doesn't, they they don't treat him like a normal politician because they know that he's totally malleable. They know that he'll go in whatever direction is the most popular. And if what most, if what the majority of people want, including persuadable voters who might be inclined to vote Republican in a lot of other ways, but are bothered by the Dobbs decision if they believe, well, look, okay, yeah, that's what Trump did, but now he's going to do something different. It is re- it is important that you don't just throw his previous statements and his previous actions back at them, that you have to do something more, which is you have to remind them that it doesn't actually matter, even if you were to believe, and you can say, I don't believe him, that he's going to change on this, but even if you believe him, it won't matter because the Republican constituency, like Republicans in the Senate, Republicans in the House, will Demand will require that he nominate justices who will do the same thing that everyone will require that of him. He won't get the opportunity like a Republican Senate won't vote for anybody uh, who would fit any of the things he's talking about. So a, a Republican president is a Republican president on this issue. It doesn't matter.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, he's this is smart in a way for him. And it's our job to make sure he doesn't get away with it. Uh, let's, uh, let's actually, you know, speaking of the house, let's kind of check in on, you know, the substance of what they should be doing instead of, you know, finger wagging at Merrick Garland and making Garland repeat himself over and over again. You know, the government runs out of funding in fewer than 11 days. And, uh, yesterday, uh, the GOP leadership canceled plans, uh, for a procedural vote on a short-term funding bill because they didn't have the numbers to pass it. Hours later, uh, hard-right conservatives tanked a procedural vote on a defense spending bill. Um, moderate Democrats are working together on a last-ditch fallback option to avert a shutdown. There's all sorts of you know, intrigue about whether there would be some kind of deal going on where you know McCarthy, who's under fire, uh, would allow a vote that includes Democratic votes, But then he would be because of like his weak hold on leadership. He would immediately be vulnerable to a vote on his leadership. There's speculation that Democrats maybe would join a vote uh, to keep McCarthy Speaker in exchange for McCarthy bringing a vote on this bill, et cetera. Some Democrats support cold water on that. Uh, Jason, it's it's hard to imagine, like to to fully understand what's going on. But one thing seems clear: is the the Biden White House has basically thrown up its hands and says, "I've already cut a deal with McCarthy." It's up to him to honor it, and the White House is actually kind of staying out of this right now under the assumption that Republicans are going to have to own what happens, and that actually a shutdown is pretty inevitable at this point, and the White House seems to be very clearly in the mode of, let's have the Republicans take responsibility for this.
0: Yeah, and right now, the entire story about a potential shutdown is about Kevin McCarthy not being able to you know, get his house in order, uh, literally, and, and so- There's no reason if you're the Biden White House to step in and say anything. You're not gonna be able to say anything that makes it easier for McCarthy to get his house in order. And all you're gonna do is insert yourself into a story that is all about Republicans right now. And rightfully so, by the way. It's not as if like, oh wow, bank error in our favor. This story about the (laughs) shutdown possibly happening seems to only be about Republicans. Yes, the story about people about terrorists taking over the building seems only to be about the terrorists and not, right. about, and not about the people outside the building right now. Well, yes, that is, that is accurate and correct. And so there's no real point to get in the way. For people who are having these conversations in their daily lives, I think what's important to remember here is that there is something politically unattractive. About disorganization, it's why the Republicans are constantly fanning the flames of you know headlines that say you know Democrats in disarray. It's why <clears throat> they love to talk about you know Joe Manchin not getting along with Joe Biden. It's they you know it's when you can divide uh, your opposition, it's much easier to conquer your opposition and to, to defeat your opposition, and so. I think that reminding people that the Republican, uh, the, the Republican caucus is largely so incredibly extreme uh, in the House that they can't agree on funding the government, and I think that that's really important. And I think it's one of the best arguments you can make right now.
1: Yeah, I mean the Republicans are attacking their own people. Like people are viewing this as McCarthy against the Freedom Caucus, but the Freedom Caucus itself is divided. Like they sent Byron Donalds as their representative in negotiations. He came back with what he thought was a deal, and they rejected it. Uh, Don Bacon, who's a Republican from Nebraska, told Politico, "Quote: Some of these folks would vote against the Bible because there's not enough Jesus in it." Uh, I
0: love that quote. By the way, I saw that the (laughs) other day. And it, it, quick sidebar. It reminds me of a story that uh, my congressman uh, Reverend Emmanuel Cleaver once told at an event that I was emceeing, seeing where he, he got up and he told it as a as a as a biblical story and it was I'll give you the short version and it reminded me of this and I love it so much it was Moses uh, was chastising the other people who were out with him in the desert and he, he would beat a guy for you know not following a, a kosher rule things like that and the The end of the story is God comes down to Moses' tent to talk to him. And Moses is like, God, you'd be so proud of me. I did this. I did this. I chastised this guy. I beat this guy. And the punchline of the story is God says to Moses, Moses, sometimes I think you're just too religious for me. And (laughs) and anyway, it just reminded me of that great story that he told.
1: Oh, my. Well, uh, just to remind people of the consequences of this, the White House sent a a helpful two-pager Uh, and talked about, well, with the government government shutdowns happens, here's what Republicans are responsible for. One, it would force service members and law enforcement officers to work without pay. It would endanger disaster response. It would undermine research on cancer and other diseases. It would eliminate Head Start slots for kids, risk significant delays for travelers, undermine public health and environmental protections, deny capital for small businesses, undermine food safety, delay infrastructure projects, and impair workplace safety and accountability. So that's what Republicans would own under this scenario. And I actually think, like, this Hunter Biden sideshow, like, this is the, you know, we're talking about politics here, like, this is politically an opportunity for Democrats to remind the voters who, you know, voted in this House of Representatives by a pretty slim margin, this is what you voted for. These are people who promised you a whole bunch of stuff. We're going to take on the opioid crisis. We're going to we're going to do something about inflation. We're going to get this economy, uh, you know, humming again. And what they've instead chosen to do is ask uh, Merrick Garland over and over again to repeat himself, and then show crotch shots of Hunter Biden. Like that's that's what they're doing in Congress. Uh,
0: now there are some Republicans in Congress who think this is absolutely nuts, as as we alluded to. There's one guy, uh, this guy, his, his name is Representative Mike Lawler from New York. He's a Republican. Uh, I just think everybody should send this video around to their friends, like make this dude famous because I think what he's saying here makes so much sense and you can tell how irritated he is. So this is a Republican from New York, a member of Congress, talking about this situation. This is not... Uh conservative republicanism this is stupidity uh the idea that we're going to shut the government down uh when we don't control the senate we don't control the white house these people can't define a win they don't know how to take yes for an answer uh it's a clown show you keep running lunatics you're going to be in
1: this position it's, i need to look n- this guy up what area does he represent that's it
0: well you look that up i'll say it's not it's not like The headline that's come out of this is him referring to some of his colleagues as lunatics. I think the important part and what we can take and use in conversations with people is these people can't define a win and they can't take yes for an answer. And to me, that so perfectly summarizes the political posture of the GOP over the last few years. And I think it's a really important place to hang your hat in these conversations, which is how can we as a culture, as a people, continue to move forward if one side can't define a win, if they cannot take yes for an answer. I mean, just pick your issue, right? Like on abortion, they got the Dobbs decision knocked down, but they can't decide whether that's a win or not. They want to go further. They're trying to throw women in jail. They're trying to throw doctors in jail. They can't a win there's no satisfying these people there's no compromising with these people and therefore you cannot vote more of these people into office because they cannot be worked with and their own colleagues are saying that too many of them cannot be worked with and so that the only ones that are you know permissible really are the moderates like this which i assume either mike lawler is a moderate or just a guy who's fed up i don't know i don't know if there really are any republican moderates elected to hardly anything at this point But, you know, they're the ones you can work with, and the party is not permitting them to be elected to anything. And this is the this is the play that they've been running against us for the last few years. This is why they will talk about AOC. They will talk about Bernie Sanders or Nancy Pelosi. Because when you talk to a real partisan, that's who they'll bring up because they're trying to separate the party. Not not separate, they're trying to make the party own the most extreme. But in this case, it's actually true of the Republicans. The most extreme elements are the ones leading the party now.
1: Well, okay, I looked this guy up. He is the guy who defeated Sean Patrick Maloney uh-huh, uh, interesting. by like fewer than 2,000 votes, like fewer than 1% of So it's a competitive district, for sure. Well, this is why we need redistricting reform right. because you know, you'd have more members of Congress talking like this guy if they knew they were accountable to a general election, right? Because yeah. um, Mike Lawler yeah. knows he's got to go home and get elected by the same people you know yeah. I mean like you can
0: give Michael Lawler credit or you can give his district credit I mean yeah it's structural I don't know the doom. I am
1: way past getting into the psychology of who electeds are as human beings anymore sure. and I am more interested in the structure of it and the structure of this I find interesting uh, well you know Another former member of Congress, Ron DeSantis, who was you know one of the founding members of the Freedom Caucus, took a swing at McCarthy. Uh, apparently, in a private strategy session last week uh, between DeSantis and House hardliners, uh, there was like a full attack from DeSantis on McCarthy. And on Monday, DeSantis ridiculed uh, McCarthy's record on government spending and basically also drew a rebuke to Trump. McCarthy was basically did the whole you're no, I know Trump, you're no Trump type of thing back to him. And it's kind of gone back and forth, which is fascinating. These are former colleagues. I think it's, it says a lot about, I think, both of them and where they are right now that they're, you know, kind of fighting it out like this.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's funny because to me, these are like, two people who very few republicans really like like i'm talking about republican elected officials you know to me and i've said this before i think that kevin mccarthy is not an example of somebody who got to the position of speaker because he's so loved within his caucus i think he got to the position of speaker because so many people in the caucus felt like he could do something for them and he wasn't a real long-term threat to them in any way so let's make this guy the speaker in this period when we're probably only gonna have a speaker for a little while right like this was as i think we're gonna find out soon this speakership is one that is not destined for a long tenure and you know, your colleagues put you in that position because they're like, oh, fine. He's fine. He'll do for that. But nobody feels that warmly toward him. And I think that's also true of Ron DeSantis. And so these two dudes fighting it out, it's funny to me.
1: Well, uh, totally trivial matter, but Senator Schumer has changed the uh, Senate dress code now, making it informal. And I think a lot of attention is on Senator uh, Fetterman, who likes to wear hoodies and whatnot. um uh susan collins actually had a funny joke saying that she would wear a bikini to the senate next week but uh fetterman you know i think he when he's at his best he's really good he put out a statement saying if those Jagovs in the house stop trying to shut our government down and fully support ukraine then i'll save democracy by wearing a suit on the senate floor next week um, I think that's probably the proper response. Like, I honestly don't care what the people in the Senate wear. Like, obviously the Congress itself has embarrassed itself over and over again, you know, evidence by the Garland hearing that what they wear is totally, you know, trivial at this point. Like if they were if they were truly these norm abiding, conscientious people, I would probably have an opinion on what they wear. But we're we're miles away from that mattering in any way.
0: You know, did you ever go to a school that had a school uniform?
1: Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh,
0: so did I. Um, and then also I was in the army. And one of the interesting things about wearing a uniform every day is that when you have an outing where people, it's not prescribed what people are going to wear. It is illuminating. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> and and so uh, you know, I I was in a legislature that had a. Uh, a dress code and we had to wear a tie and a jacket and all that. And I guess that was fine, but I, it really doesn't do you any good. And I kind of think it's interesting. The idea of seeing like having it be a workplace that's much more like most American workplaces now where most American workplaces don't have a dress code. They may have an expectation, but they don't have a written dress code. And I don't know. I think there's something to the idea of seeing how people choose to dress when they're not required to dress a certain way.
1: Well, I, I think it would be interesting to see, you know, some of our sort of more exciting dressers like Kirsten Cinema. We'll see if this in any way changes her sort of creative, you know, <laughs> approach to her, her outfit. Whereas I actually think, you know, I think given like the sort of uniformity of men's dress, which has been often criticized as like probably rightly as, almost empowering because it's like, you don't have to really think about too much about mm-hmm. what you wear. Whereas women have like, I think for many different reasons, a more complex, um, you know, set of sort of balancing to do when they, when they pick their dress code in a place like the, you know, Congress, which is why we even know what Kirsten Sinema's fashion choices are. I couldn't tell you anything about any of the men, right? It'll be interesting to see, maybe it's the, the male members that will have the most interesting, uh, adjustments yeah. to this like Fetterman, you know? So we'll see. You know. Well, you're gonna
0: see. I mean, um, you know, my our friend Brian Schatz is gonna be in there in a in a Hawaiian shirt, like, yeah, all the that time. Would be cool. So,
1: yeah, like uh, George Clooney and The Descendants. Yes. Uh, okay. All right. Well, we're gonna take a break. When we come back, we're gonna talk about this UAW strike. Really get down to the substance. Uh, and then Giuliani is getting sued over unpaid legal bills. Uh, things just seem to be going from bad to worse for him. All of this and more when we come back. Our next partner is AG1, the daily foundational nutritional supplement that supports whole body health. Long-time listeners will know I drink it every day, and I've been drinking it long before they sponsored this podcast. I drink it first thing in the morning, and sometimes if I have a tough workout later in the day or I'm traveling, I'll drink it again. And it's a great bang for your buck, and it replaces a lot of other supplements. Like instead of taking like a handful of pills and all these other drinks, I just take one scoop of AG1, put it in water, and it tastes amazing. Uh, and since I've been drinking AG1, I've noticed tons of benefits, like more energy, better digestion, more mental clarity and focus. And so I can't think of another daily routine that pays off as well as AG1, which is why I recommend it so much. So if you're looking for a simpler, effective investment for your health, try AG1 and get five free AG1 travel packs and a free one year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash majority. That's drinkag1.com slash majority sleep is such an important part of your health and your wellness. And that's why I love my Helix mattress so much. Uh, I had, you know, for years I had a mattress that was just super uncomfortable and I just thought that's just the way it was. But then I took the Helix sleep quiz and in under two minutes I was matched with a midnight, midnight Lux mattress because I sleep on my side and I like a medium feel and it has been a revolution. Uh, it has completely changed the way I sleep. I've gotten so much better, deeper, more consistent sleep. Uh, and you can too, you could take that quiz, find the mattress that is right for you. Uh, so don't take my word for it. They have over 12,000 five-star reviews and by supporting Helix, you're allowing us to grow our show. So go purchase your Helix and you can thank us later for your best night's sleep. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows to our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com majority 54. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long with Helix Better sleep starts now. Well, I recorded that ad, Jason, first thing this morning, and man, my voice sounds much different first thing in the morning. I was
0: thinking, oh, this was a while back when he was sick, but no.
1: You know, you know, it's a little scratchy, you know? I I wish that was my voice all the time,
0: you know? It's, uh, I. You know, it's nice. I gotta be honest.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I gotta work (laughs) on that. Maybe with age, maybe with age, it'll change. Ah, nicely done. Yeah. We'll see. (laughs) Uh, okay. Well, the UAW strike. So there's a lot of interesting stuff happening with this strike. Uh, so they voted on Friday to strike, uh, nearly one in 10 unionized auto workers in the United States, uh, went on strike at one time. And this is a new strategy for strikes. So, um, couple of things are notable about this. Number one is that uh, workers at all of the, each of the big three went on strike, which is the first time that has happened. Uh, and also this is a rolling strike. So they're starting with a few factories and plants and then, uh, and then they're going to expand over time. Uh, and this is the first strike under UAW president, Sean Fain, who is the first ever chosen by a direct election. And, you know, they're asking for certain things that are pretty standard. Um, one is a, uh, a, a, uh, hike for pay. They want the 36% pay increase over four years. Uh, but the benefits, I think, is really where the sticking point here is. So they want cost of living pay increases. They want an end to this two-tiered wage system that they have. They want a 32-hour week with 40 hours of pay. They want a restoration of traditional defined benefit pensions for new hires who are being kind of pushed into these 401k type plans. And they want a pension increases for retirees, among other efforts. And This is a crisis. Uh, The Biden administration has sent uh, two senior officials to Michigan to try to be as helpful as they possibly can. Trump has waded in, and uh, the union has uh, so far, uh, which traditionally backs Democrats, has made it clear that they are mad at Biden over his support for electric vehicles, which they view as part of the problem because electric vehicles require less assembly, um, and they feel like the subsidies... Uh, For electric vehicles that Biden has supported have caused them issues, and um, obviously the non-unionized auto uh, makers, like foreign automakers, and and others like Tesla, and then electric vehicle manufacturers are kind of the other party here who seem to be uh, benefiting from the strike and would continue to benefit if the strike continues.
0: Yeah, let's start by talking through uh, some of the demands from the union, some of what they're wanting. Um, I think. A lot of people, when they hear things like a twenty percent increase, a thirty-six percent increase in wages, it might startle some people. But there's a couple of things to consider here. One, you have to look at stuff like how much the pay of the executives has gone up during this period, and that's getting a lot more attention during this strike. During you know, with the WGA and the, and the SAG after strike, uh, that were that I don't remember it getting that sort of attention in the past. And It's becoming a major talking point. And executives are having to answer difficult questions about that because when you have CEOs that their salaries are going up well more than that, how exactly are they supposed to credibly make the case that they they as an individual are of such incredible value to the company that they should get pay increases by percentage that are more than these workers that are skilled and that have learned these skills and are not easily replaceable? You know, the, these are technical jobs. These are <clears throat> are skilled jobs, skills that are learned. And the other thing that has to be, uh, I think, kept in mind is that when you're an auto worker, and it's why it's why auto workers are are sort of the leading edge of what people think of when they think of manufacturing, organi- organized manufacturing work. Right? It's because these are skilled positions that take time to learn, and they're very specialized. But they're also in many cases not very transferable. So you you may go into let's take the military as an example, where there are a lot of technical skills that you're going to learn in the military. Well, one of the great advantages of that is that you can take a lot of those skills and you can use them in a lot of other industries. And I'm not just talking about like being a security guard. I'm talking about if you work on helicopters, then you can come out and there's a lot of different kinds of engines uh, and machines that you can work on because you have that skill and you can do that. If you do a very specialized thing, you know, in building uh, automobiles, it's very difficult for you to lateral into another position, which means now some people take that and say, "Oh, well so these workers are overestimating their value." No, their value to the company is is very is great because it takes time for them to develop that skill and to learn that. But what it also means is that the worker has invested something in the company beyond just their work. They've also invested their future to a degree in it. and That's why you always hear the stories about when the auto plants closed, why, how it really killed the town because it was so difficult for so many of those workers to transition into other work because they had really given themselves over to this company and trusted it because for years, that's how it worked. In a lot of ways, it's not unlike you know professional athletes, for instance, who they forego the opportunity to learn other more transferable skills in order to do this very specialized thing. And so as a result, they're paid very well. Uh, and, and I think that that has to be kept in mind when, t- when the strike is, is talked about.
1: Yeah, I think like in the strikers' favor. Like number one, the, the public is behind them on this. So something like seventy-five percent of Americans, uh, when polled, support them. Uh, I think it, it's in part because CEO pay has increased over the past few years by forty percent, uh, and in the past decade, uh, the big three have made two hundred fifty billion in profits, uh, and that's profits, right? So that's not revenue, and. So, and and also that these workers were asked in 2008 and around that time Mm -hmm. to take pay cuts to ensure the survival of the automakers who did, you know, by and large survive at a time where people thought they would all die. So they're saying now it's our time. Uh, and I think you could believe that while also thinking that the fundamentals here are going to be very difficult. Uh, this is how Bloomberg put it, their editorial board. They said, um, there are two problems, though. They basically started off by saying, we're very sympathetic to the strikers, but they said, yet yeah, there are two problems with the UAW's approach. One is that meeting the totality of these demands would incur unsustainable expenses. Hourly labor costs would surge from about $64 to more than $150. That compares to about $55 per hour at non-union U.S. plants for foreign auto workers and about $45 an Hour at Tesla factories. So basically saying, you know, $150 uh, per hour of labor costs against $45 at Tesla is saying, like, look, like you could believe that the workers have are, are due and all this kind of stuff, but it's not going to solve for this huge competitive disadvantage that these automakers already have and that will get even more significant. Like, you know, orders of magnitude three 3x plus difference in hourly costs. That's obviously going to translate. And then they had a whole separate thing about how the Biden administration's EPA mandate uh, that 67.5% of new vehicles sold by 2032 will be electric. They said, quote, if Biden's electric vehicle vision is to be realized, Detroit will likely need fewer workers with less general compensation, precisely the opposite of what the UAW would like. I don't understand enough about car manufacturing to evaluate that claim. But I think the first one is kind of scary, which is to say, like, even if they get what they want this could sow the seeds for some competitive issues and they can't control whether Tesla is unionized or not. And there are plenty of good progressives out there driving those Tesla cars right now. There's not even a conversation right now about what that means.
0: Yeah, it's such a good point. Uh, That so often we think of it as, well, the solution here has to be found in how to become more competitive with the company that treats its workers poorer. And really the question should be, How do we make it so that all these workers, whether they are union workers or not, have greater wages and have a better workplace environment? Clearly, the folks at Tesla who are doing skilled labor are not being treated (laughs) fairly. And there's all sorts of things that have been proposed in Congress over the past few years that would have actually made it easier to form a union that the Republicans have opposed over and over and over again. And where I think what, what makes me optimistic, not about the strike itself but generally about the attitudes of Americans is that I think more and more we are getting closer at least to the place where I think we need to be when we talk about labor and organized labor in particular in this country, which is recognizing that you don't have to be a member of a union in order to understand that what unions do is they fight for people who are not management and who are not employers themselves. So if you are somebody who you know gets a paycheck and goes to work and works for someone else, whether you are a member of a union or, an, or not, the unions are out there fighting to, to better your situation. Because when this is eventually resolved, it will make it more difficult for Elon Musk to continue paying crap wages by comparison to people who helped build Teslas. Now. They're not going to be able to collectively bargain because they don't have a union, but he's going to have to pay them more and give them more benefits in order to keep them from being incentivized to form a union. And and that in that way, just in and of itself, that's how the union will eventually help even the workers who are non-union workers. And and that's what's so interesting to me is I often will meet people who are not union and they will they will say bad things about unions and tell you why they're not in a union. And it's like, hey... You are benefiting from what the unions are doing for the union workers, whether you realize it or not. The other thing I think that's important here is that this is, if you are a supporter of, uh, well, for lack of a better way of putting it, socialized medicine of some, of, in some form or fashion, whether it's single payer, however you want to think about it. The situation with uh, the UAW's relationship with the the big three has been, for me, always exhibit a, as to why it actually hurts American competitiveness, not to have, uh, a, um, uh, at least a public option in the way that, uh, other, other countries do, because what is, what is one of the huge advantages now, not in this country with its, with its plants, but the majority of, of these foreign vehicles are still made elsewhere, not in the United States. And why do they have such an advantage in selling? They, you know, like, why do you see Toyota regularly beating Ford with a lot of different things? The answer is because those companies with most of their employees don't have to pay for health benefits. And that is a massive competitive advantage uh, that hurts both the UAW and the big three uh, automakers. And why, why Ford and Chevy haven't been for years uh, in favor of, um, of public health care in this country is, is beyond me.
1: Yeah, and Democrats had floated a $4,500 tax credit uh, in the sort of uh, Inflation Reduction Act or Build Back Better Act uh, for electric vehicle manufacturers who were unionized and Manchin stripped that from the bill. And that may prove to be a fateful decision because I do think that this changes the narrative now. Like, if you're cool. the Democrats, you want to talk about Republicans and Trump and their anti labor stance. Mm-hmm. Uh, what the conversation has become is about this electric vehicles stance. And, you know, the workers, if you read these accounts, the workers are definitely angry about the electric vehicles provisions. And I think this is a narrative problem for the biden white house and one that they need to take extremely seriously and and trump is obviously mucking this up as well this is a classic type of thing he loves to do which is you know something that is very much of his own making like one of the reasons why unions have been gutted is because of people he's put on the judiciary and federal policy that they've pushed like obviously left unsaid is like we frame it as like mansion stripped the union provision from that bill even the way i just said it but you know, left unsaid is the army of Republicans who also would have opposed mm-hmm. that too, right? And so you think about the lone Democrat or the few Democrats who would have opposed that, right? That's that's the tricky messaging position here, and the the, the really tricky part for Democrats is like we support electric vehicles mm-hmm. by and large, uh, but the workers. Uh, on the grounds have complicated feelings about this, the ones you are working at, auto manufacturers, and we have to take seriously the disconnect between the way we talk about these things sometimes and the way the workers think about it. And this is Michigan we're talking about. So we have to be really careful about what's going on here. Uh, Michigan among other places, but Michigan particularly. So this is a hot issue, I would say. The, if I'm Biden, I'm all over this.
0: This has been, for many years now, a, a difficult issue for Democratic uh, politicians because the because there is a natural tension between these two really important constituencies in the democratic coalition one is environmentalists and the other is labor and and there are just a lot of issues where their their interests run at least somewhat counter to one another and and this is one of them there's many others and and so the, the Republicans are constantly trying to seize on this. And and it's a real thing. Like, I remember the first race I ever ran, I ran in the Democratic primary for the state legislature. And I remember uh, one of the very few endorsements I actually got in that race was from the UAW. And it was simply, I think, because my opponent in the Democratic primary uh, drove a Prius. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I think that, and, and, and if I recall correctly, by the end of that campaign, my opponent had traded in the Prius for a Ford Escape hybrid, which were at the time built uh, in Clay Como, Missouri, just north of Kansas City. So it's a real thing. And what you're going to see, I promise you, and this is something for people to, to watch out for, is people, and I will tell you who will be first, it'll be Josh Hawley, will be first through the door on this, will be pretending they may even go so far as to walk a picket line. I doubt it, But they may even show up at a picket line and make all of their talking points about electric vehicles and about Joe Biden. Never mind the fact that they are in favor of right to work laws that disempower these folks. And the reason I say Holly is because uh, two of these strikes are happening in, in Missouri, right? They're happening in St. Louis and Kansas city. And,
1: and so you're going to see that kind of thing and they're going to, he's going to hop on the plane from the DC suburbs and <laughs> that's make right, it out to right. Missouri. Wow. That's right. He's going to I think zoom I've been in, in Missouri more, more than Josh Holly has been over line. the past couple of years. But, but that, you you know, so watch you. out I for the faux China. populism that's I coming and Trump's
0: going to do it too. J.D. Vance. Yeah. Oh, Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And so we got to be careful about this. I think this is a this is an underrated issue and one that could really define the next few months, if not the sort of home stretch between now and the election. Like this is huge. Mm -hmm. And I think it is the perfect framing for Republicans if they get it right and we get it wrong, which is you're so elitist, you know, urbanite that you have forgotten the working Class, right, and that is we have got to be careful about how we talk about this, how we engage on this. We need to put that subsidy back on the table for unionized workforces. We need to push really hard. And maybe Biden, you know, maybe one of the things he does is he 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 promises he will push for and maybe gets mentioned to the table, renewing that credit to say, all right, let's just do a vote on that credit, and we will add that credit to the table, and that tax credit could be used to help sweeten the deal for everybody else and then change the conversation about the electric vehicles. Like, I think it's that important.
0: And and continue to push to do everything you can to make it so that it is easier to unionize um, the currently non-union workplaces. And there's lots of legislation that have been pushed, but you got to continue to talk about it. Yeah. And And the Republicans have opposed all of it.
1: And and you and show that you're doing this. Like go to Detroit and announce this. Say, look, mm-hmm. I call on my Republican colleagues to vote for two things. You know, one is the electric uh, vehicle uh, tax credit, the second is you know, something to strengthen Employee Free Choice Act, yeah. all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, you yeah, know, in you know, NLR NLRB reforms, whatever, like something easy for people to explain, maybe not NLRB, but uh so okay. Uh one last thing here. Uh Giuliani, um, is now in a fight with his lawyers over unpaid legal bills. Uh, so uh, he is now being sued by his own lawyer, Robert J. Costello, uh, who has been leading Giuliani's defense. Uh, and so he is suing uh, Giuliani for $1.3 million in unpaid legal fees. So now Giuliani, I think, is probably going to have to hire a lawyer to defend himself against this lawyer uh, when he doesn't have money, clearly, to pay the original lawyer. Uh, and this is a guy who apparently was a mentee of Giuliani's. Oh the two men have known each other for a uh, half century. Costello trained as a law student under Giuliani, who at the which time was a federal prosecutor. Which is one
0: third of Giuliani's life. So that's yeah.
1: a lot. <laughs> Giuliani lashed out of Costello and the lawsuit portraying it as an you know, aggressive attempt to collect. He said, quote, I can't express how personally hurt I am by what Bob Costello has done. It's a real shame when lawyers do things like this. And all I'll say is that their bill is way in excess to anything approaching legitimate fees. Reached by phone, Costello declined to comment, but then added, uh, how can he take personal affront when he owes my firm nearly $1.4 million? And then he eventually added that he had been kind of updating Giuliani every step of the way of these costs. Uh, reminder to folks out there who incur legal bills to always read the hourlies and create a system where people update you every week on those hourlies because things can get out of control. And if you nitpick, it works. If you don't nitpick, you can be taken advantage of. So nitpick on those hours, people. Uh, I know you may have different feelings about this as somebody who is on the other side of the table, but that's generally been my no,
0: point. No, remember, I, I, I practiced the kind of law where you had to keep track of your hours for about a year, and then I realized that it was not healthy to be in the bathroom thinking, well, what client can I think about so I can go back and write this down? Right, like, yeah. It was, I hated, I, it was just, and that's why I left and became, one of the reasons I left and became a plaintiff's attorney so that you just you if you won you got paid if you didn't if you didn't win you didn't get paid and you didn't have to write everything down Um, (laughs) it just just didn't seem right to me
1: yeah no i hear you um Uh, so there's one
0: other giuliani item here which i guess just happened and we don't really know much about it i'm literally just reading the notes uh that our producers put in here that cassidy hutchinson uh the former trump aide turned crucial january 6 witness says in a new book that she was groped by rudy giuliani uh, describes him as like a wolf closing in on its prey on the day of the attack on the capitol uh, it describes meeting with giuliani backstage at trump's speech near the white house before his supporters marched on congress and attempt to overturn the 2020 election hutchinson says the former new york mayor turned trump lawyer put his hand under my blazer then my skirt so uh i don't know do we need to say anything else about this, the, this Just imagine
1: allegate. how like just just how disgusting that whole scene is. You know, young person yeah. goes to Washington, DC. You know, you could quibble with whatever judgment working for Trump in the first place, but um clearly is somebody who has a stronger conscience than her colleagues, given everything that's happened since, goes there to try to do the right thing, and our democracy is crumbling around her, and um you know, sort of chief lawyer to the president is you know, you know, committing sexual assault against her. I mean, you can only imagine how hard that must have been for her, uh, and just what an absolute disgrace this administration was, uh, and why we need to keep reminding people just how disgusting these people are. And like when
0: I think back to those images of the like watch party that was going on for January sixth, where they're all you know Kimberly Guilfoyle and you know all all those folks are they're celebrating. It's it's a it's a party. It's a frat party, and you know clearly Giuliani thought so. Not that that's acceptable behavior anywhere. Point being like, well, if you, I think one of the things you can say to people is if you are a person who looks at January 6th as something that was a really bad day in this country, regardless of any other feelings you have about it, if you think that was a tragic day in American history, understand that Trump and the people around him were partying and they, to this day, do not think it is an aberration in American history. Do not think it is anything other than business as usual and is not to be taken seriously. That to me is terribly, pardon the term, impeaching of their of their character and whether or not they can be in charge of anything.
1: Wow. Well, okay. Well, uh, we are running out of time. One for we, us.
0: Yeah, I guess next week, what the, here's what I'll say about the uh, the Deion Sanders thing I teased at the beginning. Oh, Yeah. Uh, I don't think that we have the clip, um, but, uh, oh, we do. Okay, great. I'm going to tee this up real quick. I want people to listen to this and think about what politics used to be like in this country, what politics could be like in the future. If we, if we were to create an incentive system, much like we talked about a few minutes ago that puts people in positions where they should, where they would want to behave the way it would be expected in another workplace. Like if we had districts that were fair, that kind of thing, because the backstory on this is, uh, Deion Sanders star put. Deion Sanders is is you don't even need to know the rest about Deion Sanders. He is currently the head football coach at the University of Colorado. His star player was hit late during the game. It was a pretty egregious late hit, and he's out for weeks. He has a pretty serious injury, and now there are uh, death threats against the player who did it because it was it was a pretty gnarly hit, um, and but I want people to see how Deion Sanders responded to finding out that there are death threats against this opposing player.
3: Henry Blackburn, I want you guys to record this and run with this. Uh, Henry Blackburn is a good player who played a phenomenal game. He made a tremendous uh, hit on Travis on the sideline. You could call it dirty. You could call it he was just playing the game of football. But whatever it was, it does not constitute that he should be receiving death threats. That That's... This is still a young man trying to make it in life, a guy that's trying to live his dream and hopefully graduate with honors or degree, uh, committed to excellence and go to the NFL. He does not deserve a death threat over a game. At the end of the day, this is a game. Someone must win, someone must lose. Everybody continues their life the next day. Very unfortunate. I'm saddened if there's any of our fans that's on the other side of those threats. I would hope and pray not. But that kid was just playing the best of his ability, and he made a mistake. So I forgive him. See you. Um, our team forgive him. Um, Travis is, he's forgiven him. Let's move on. But that kid does not deserve that
0: i wanted people to hear this this to me is like one of our occasional segments of uh it's political but it doesn't seem political because it's not just our politics where we seem to have no empathy and and no grace for one another but it's just like people who become instantly famous on the internet and be and become part of our politics because they become a a symbol for one view or the other we have we are just so ready to savage those people and it is so rare that somebody with an interest or even possibly agreeing with the savagery of them or, or the emotion of it uh, steps up and says, Hey, don't do that. And, and like it is going to make a huge difference in that kid's life that he did that. Had he not done that, that would have continued. It would have followed him forever, but this will absolutely soften it. Uh, And I think that that, and we could just we could see that more often,
1: yeah, it reminds me of when the the Hamlin thing happened, like the bills were quick to I think it was T. Higgins or whoever that 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 hit was mm-hmm. um were very clear to make, you know, to say, like, look, this is not. and they they later appeared together or whatever. But the whole Deion Sanders thing is fascinating for many oh. reasons with like this guy who do a is, whole show who was, you know, one of the greatest athletes in American history, you know, who, Played both sides of the ball. All three phases, actually, in football and was a great baseball player at the same time. Was just, like, iconic, maybe the best cornerback in NFL history, Mm -hmm. the best return man in NFL history. Also played wide receiver for a Super Bowl team. Unfortunately, that beat my team. And... Played baseball at the same time is crazy, but was also a famously undisciplined guy uh, in terms of like, you know, him and Jerry Rice used to go at it all the time because Sanders would go out partying before the Super Bowl or whatever. Uh, and that this guy has now turned into a juggernaut of a coach at the perfect time when the, when you have all the, uh, the uh, you know, paying players and all that. Like he, he's come about at the perfect time to disrupt college football. I'm definitely here for it. As somebody who doesn't watch a lot of college football, I'm enjoying the whole spectacle of it. Apparently, the, the most ratings ever for a college football game where Colorado State versus Colorado, my watch. God, my God, uh, I find Trump it so and I or, or
0: Justin, Trump, and I, True and I, God, that's terrible, True and I uh, at this point are like, like we're Mizzou fans, but we're like, we can't miss our Colorado team, yeah. like we've got to watch our, our, our team is not like full bandwagon, um, I'm totally in It's into absolutely
1: it. right. nuts. Uh, and, uh, you know, somebody who spent a lot of time in Mississippi, I, I, the people down there saw this coming, like when he was in Jackson, which is a small town for a guy with as big of a personality as Deion Sanders. And it's it's a miracle he even lasted a year down there, like that place.
0: And he, he made, he was there too. Two years. And, yeah. and, and, and Crazy. I, I, I wanted to mention it for all those reasons, but I also just quietly Deion Sanders is doing things that I think we could all look to. He's, he's being a role model. And we can all watch what he's doing. Now, that said, we can do one for us real quick. Uh, what do you got? What's going
1: on? Well, okay, I'm heading down in the morning to Texas because I'm going to Waco first. We've talked about Waco, oh, yes. but I'm going there. They have a wave pool down there. So I'm going to do this wave pool, and then I'm heading to uh, Texas. And then from Texas, I'm going down to the Power Monkey Fitness Camp in Tennessee, their 10-year anniversary. Shout out to Sadie Durante and the team over there. They listen to Majority 54. This is like that gymnastics CrossFit uh mm camp that i went to a couple years ago and they're yeah just hitting the road america always looking looking forward to seeing america
0: and uh this saturday we'll be in austin together doing uh majority 54 and
1: mckenzie from the oc which you know nothing about but is a big deal to those of us who who know a lot about it uh ryan from the oc you know come out to the tribune fest will be saturday at some point i think in the morning we'll be Mm -hmm. interviewing him and uh Jason's gonna, you know, dust off his crypto knowledge to ask uh, some very detailed technical questions.
0: Yeah, well, there's no, there's no dust on it because I haven't even acquired <laughs> it yet. Um, the uh, my little one for us thing is I am about halfway through Gary Goleman's book *Misfit*, which came out this, uh, which came out yesterday, Tuesday. Uh, and people might be familiar with Gary Goleman. He is a, a stand-up comedian who had a special a few years ago called *The Great Depression* about mental health. Um, that's phenomenal. People should absolutely watch. And uh the book is is so great. It is it is a and uh, I, I, I picked these words on purpose. It is a delightful book about depression and childhood. Uh and it's funny and whimsical and but also really insightful and uh, I'm really enjoying it. So I would Oh recommend.
1: amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Absolutely. So. All right. And order is restored. Both of our teams won this week. So Yeah. Yeah. Just keep That's rolling. Right keep rolling. Uh,
0: Remember to subscribe to Majority 54 wherever you listen to audio podcasts. Just search Majority 54 and please leave a five-star review. Thank you to the Midas Mighty. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today.